On the record on News Talk. Brought to you by PwC. Great minds think unalike. Different skill sets, diverse opinions, it all adds up to the new equation. The front page of the Irish Mail on Sunday is where we'll start this morning. Um, Son dead in family stabbing horror is the front page story there. This is the story you heard Tina talking about just a couple of minutes ago. A community has been left in shock following the death of a national pitch and putt champion whose father remains in hospital with serious injuries after a double stabbing attack at their home. Shane Murphy, 27, was third in the national men's pitch and putt rankings. He died after being stabbed in the chest in an attack at his home in a housing estate in Cargillion, County Cork in the early hours of yesterday morning. His father, Patrick Murphy, 75, widely known as Weeshy, remains in a serious condition in intensive care. A suspect aged four who was known to the victims has been arrested in connection with the double stabbing. He has been detained under Section 4 of the Criminal Justice Act at Gurnabrohar Garda Station in Cork City last night. Uh, the front page of the Business Post is uh, two stories which will affect us uh, all, in fact three stories which will affect us all uh, an awful lot um, in, in the coming months and years. Um, the first one is Below the Fold, um, where the renewable energy industry has absolutely no confidence, quote, that key state agencies can deliver the major infrastructural upgrades needed to decarbonise the economy. Um, Dara O'Brien is the Minister for Housing, Wind Energy, uh, Housing, Minister for Housing, rather. Uh, Wind Energy Ireland, uh, Ireland uh, wrote to him last week, um, outlining how renewable energy products are waiting well over a year for a planning decision, which is more than three times the target deadline of 18 weeks set for strategic infrastructure applications. And their general case is that it is absolutely impossible to try and plan to decarbonise the economy if they are waiting so long for permission to undertake all of those developments. Also on the front page of the Business Post is the news that the government expects tent accommodation for Ukrainian refugees to be required to be used within weeks as unprecedented numbers of people fleeing the country arrive in this country. Uh, the Defence Forces have set up an emergency tented facility at Gormanstown Camp in County Meath which is now available for up to 320 refugees in case the state cannot secure enough vacant hotel rooms or vacant homes. It will have army camp beds and shared spaces so it will principally be used as emergency accommodation for single people before they're moved on then as soon as possible to hotels. The idea being if you don't have enough hotel rooms pre-available on any one night you'll move some of them to Gormanstown just as a place to sleep for that evening. The number of people arriving exceeded 600 a day at times last week. It has now reached more than 12,000 in total. I think the last daily figures that I saw had 860-odd people uh, coming from Ukraine on Thursday and three-quarters of them needed uh, state assistance in finding accommodation. And that's only going to continue to rise. Uh, Leo Varadkar did say during the week he expected the number to have surpassed 20,000 by the end of the month, which is only a couple of days away. Um, the front-page story on the Business Post is a particularly significant one though as well because we all know about the the rising cost of living and how it's hitting our pockets. It also now emerges that construction firms are threatening to pull out of state housing schemes and road projects which are central to the government's plans. They are warning that hyperinflation means that the works are no longer viable and that they simply can't afford to deliver them because the costs of steel, timber, diesel and other materials have soared in price. The projects involved are key to the delivery of both Housing for All and the National Development Plan and this development comes as the government has been put under pressure by growing public sector wage demands and as the cost of living continues to soar in the wake of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And we'll probably get back to discussing that, I suspect, uh, in a couple of minutes' time because if all of those plans are, are coming unstuck, then it's, it's quite significant. Um, the front page of the Sunday Times tells us that the White House was forced to clarify comments from Joe Biden yesterday after he called for Vladimir Putin to be toppled. Um, that's a, a pretty major thing to say, let alone a thing to then to try and walk back. Uh, we'll talk about that to Shona Murray a little bit later this hour. Uh, the front page story, though, in the Sunday Times 
is that the Irish curbs on COVID are the second softest in the world. You will remember that there were previous studies, uh, according to the Blavatnik School of Government, which showed that Ireland scored more than 80 out of 100 for the severity of its lockdown measures. We were recorded as having the eighth most stringent lockdown in the world. Now we have the second lightest COVID curbs in the world. Apparently only Mongolia does less to curb the spread of COVID-19 than Ireland does. Um, Finally to the front page of the Sunday Independent. We learn on the sidebar that Robbie Keane's solicitors have sent a legal letter to Fine Gael after the party issued a statement from one of its senators criticising his FAI salary during the week. There was a statement which you may have seen circulating on social media issued in the name of the Longford-based senator Michal Carragy. He was taking issue with the fact that Robbie Keane hasn't had any official FAI duties um, since he was dropped as a member of the, the management team. He was an assistant coach under Mick McCarthy. Uh, there is no role for him in Stephen Kenny's setup, uh, but he's still on the payroll and still receiving a quarter of a million euro a year. It was clear claimed in the statement that this was taxpayer funded we now learn that Robbie Keane's solicitors have sent a legal letter uh, about that claim uh, but finally uh, and we'll finish on this one because I'll bring in Hugh O'Connell who's with us in studio today he has written this piece Health Minister Stephen Donnelly and the outgoing Chief Medical Officer Tony Houlihan are at odds over a new COVID-19 advisory group as case numbers soar and hospitals brace for surge in admissions amid the highly infectious BA2 variant. As I said, Hugh O'Connell uh, is with me in studio alongside Christina Finn, political editor of the journal.ie to review this morning's newspapers. Um, Hugh, it's a, about a month or more maybe since we were told or we got the official word that Neffet was going to be wound up. Uh, the releases stopped being issued in its name a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Philip Nolan was in Washington with us a couple of weeks ago. He confirmed that Neffet no longer existed. You'd have thought they would only have stood down Neffet when they had some kind of successor or some sort of replacement vehicle in place. Evidently not. Yeah, good morning, Gavin. And before I start, I should wish my own wife a happy Mother's Day and thank her for letting me be here this morning. Um, the Yeah, I mean, the CMO wrote to... Uh, Stephen Donnelly on the day, uh, the last day that Neffet met on seventeenth on the seventeenth of February, uh, it was a, a separate letter to the one that was issued on foot of the Neffet meeting. Mm. It's a four-page letter. Uh, it hasn't been released publicly, but I understand that it essentially contains and sets out the future approach to COVID nineteen as recommended by the CMO, and that would include setting up a kind of a small public core sort of public health group in, that would include whose members would include the CMO. The, the deputy CMO, mm. the chair of the uh, National Virus Reference Laboratory, uh, who's Killian Tagaskin, Philip Nolan, the head, the head of modelling so, on Neffet. Sounds quite like the existing... Yeah, it's, it's kind of getting the it's old band It's not really so much Neffet Nua, really. Is yeah, like Neffet it's re- kind of getting the old bands back together. Um, it's, it's all of the usual suspects, I suppose, who would be involved in formulating pandemic policy mm. and certainly the kind of core group around Holohan. Some people would say these are a lot of kind of Holohan uh, acolytes, yeah. uh, or loyalists. Yeah, pro- uh, proxies. Yeah. Another, yeah. Uh, not all of them would be, though, I suppose. But but in any case... So, um, so the, we should probably just say, by the way, that the outgoing Neffet had somewhere in the region of 40 to 50 members. Mm-hmm. So basically what mm-hmm. it seems like then, what you're describing there, is that Holohan wanted the group reconstituted with only that core so that other yeah. people could get back to their lives. Yeah, exactly. Um, so this was the recommendation, as I understand it, that went to the Minister for Health, and nothing has happened since then. And... Stephen Donnelly wants uh, to add his own people to this group. Um, He, as his spokesperson said yesterday, wishes to ensure that any new group that is advising him in government includes a broad range of relevant expertise from both the medical and scientific communities. So not just medics 
it would be scientists as well. And <laughs> so he, he wants the, those core of four or five people to be supplemented by a few dozen other practitioners. Well, I sounds, don't know if it's it a sounds few, very like Neffet. I don't know if it's a few dozen other. No, okay, or, fair enough. But but it's it's definitely it's a few more people I think than than some people uh, within Neffet would 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 like. And mm. certainly there's a view that what uh, within uh, some senior echelons of of the uh, of of the Department of Health and Neffet that 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 this is not the sort of uh, group that was envi- is envisaged by the CMO. Mm. Uh, so there's a disagreement there. And the group hasn't been set up. Um, there's some talk that it might be set up uh, next week, potentially, yeah. or announced next week, or sometime in, in early yeah, April. Yeah, Leo Rack had an event on Wednesday morning, and he said imminently. But yeah, it, but it's it, been imminent it, for a couple of weeks yeah, now. Yeah, but it, but it hasn't happened yet. And I suppose yeah. it hasn't happened, and it has coincided with a time when case numbers have soared. There's been a quarter of a million cases in the last uh, few weeks. Uh, daily case numbers, uh, hospital admissions are up, ICU admissions are kind of, they, they have gone up, although not, not, not substantially and certainly not to a degree to which we've been used to before. But all of it, I suppose, points to the kind of ongoing tension that exists between um, the the government uh, and has existed at certain points over the last two years between the government and the chief medical <coughs> officer. And certainly, mm. as I point out in the piece today, that the number of disputes that the health this health minister has had with his CMO mm. uh, far exceeds the number of disputes <laughs> that Simon Harris would have had with Tony Holland yeah. on COVID nineteen policy. Uh, it's this. It's stuff like antigen. Yeah, uh, and it's, so on. It's thumbs so, up emoji gate, which you were responsible up for gate. as well. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, uh, you know. Uh, well, sorry, you were responsible for it. You obviously weren't sending it. Not but so much a disagree. Not so much a disagreement. Well, I mean, there was a disagreement there as well. I yeah. suppose. Yeah. Over over foreign travel policy, um. So, uh, like, I think it's uh, it's it's not great. Uh, you know, Tony Holland is leaving. His his departure is not connected to this. I yeah. should stress, but he's he's mm. leaving in July. Um, and I suppose uh, the next few months will be interesting to see if this group gets up and running and it, how it functions and whether it is mm, ends up making yeah. any sort of recommendations. Just finally, before I do come to Christina, you've been very patient to, to wait your chance, Christina, I'll come to you in just a second. But uh, th- there is no suggestion that the delay in setting up this new surveillance body of some sort or another is in any way linked to the issuing of public health advice. Presum- as it stands right now, if there was a case for some sort of restrictions that Tony mm. Hulan thought there was a case mm. to be made, he mm. would bring the advice anyway. Yeah, no, I, I don't think there's any question that, that if, if restrictions were needed or if the, the mass mandate needed to come back, the CMO would have no hesitation in recommending that to mm. the minister. Uh, this week, we, you know, as my colleague Philip Ryan reported in the Irish Independent, uh, Tony Holohan uh, spoke to both the Taoiseach and the health minister and said there's no case for bringing or no need at this point yeah. to be bringing back any of the restrictions and certainly no, no need to be bringing back the uh, the mask mandate so that's where it stands at this uh, point Christina Finn uh, of the journal.ie one, one thing which strikes me about all of this is we've come through two years now where there's been so many discussions around who was actually running the country was yeah. it the government or was it Neffet was it Micheál Martin was it Leo Varadkar or actually was it Tony Houlihan and it strikes me that those debates aren't really settled if Stephen Donnelly, who ultimately runs the Department of Health and decides presumably what surveillance measure should be there, doesn't feel like he can take this sort of measure without at least having Tony Houlihan on board. Yeah, it very much speaks to the tensions, I think, that have existed in the background since the onset of the pandemic. There's been, you know, numerous um, reports of you know, arguments or disagreements about how things should should be run. And I think with this new group, the government definitely doesn't want to get into the space where they have those headlines again, where it mm. looks like there's another, as you said, Nefet Nua running the show. Mm. I think they very much want to ensure that they, you know, that's an advisory group. I, I doubt you would see them out as much as 
Neffet were yeah. on the onset of the mm-hmm. pandemic. I think media relations and all the rest, we saw that being curtailed towards um, yeah. um, the well, slowdown of y- this. You were there beside me in Washington. The one the one way that you absolutely knew Neffet had been stood down is that when Philip Nolan was walking past us and we said, can we have a word? He didn't need to check with any government advisor whether he could do it or not. Exactly. He stopped because it, it, he is free. He's liberated. Yeah, and I think we're in, a, you know, Michael Martin has kind of been a pains to say we're at a very different phase of the pandemic and, and Philip Nolan was speaking of that in Washington saying that we're at the exit wave and that, you know, the lifting of restrictions, as you mentioned there in the Sunday Times being, you know, one of the most, uh, the easiest, or you know, topping that poll, uh, topping that survey in terms mm. of the, the ease of restrictions for Ireland, you know, that we're in a very different space that the government has to manage. They need to get this group up and running. Um, I understand they want to have, as Hugh said, people that are more on the ground yeah. on that group that, you know, people can feed into the actual realities of the impact of COVID-19. Um, you know, there's been talk of, um, you know, the the same faces. So it's very much, I think, could be a rehash, but they, I, I don't think you're going to see the same sort of you know, publicity or yeah. a- allowing um, some of those medical and scientific experts to get to, I suppose, the mm. level of um, it, publicity perhaps it, they would have had in the past. It still sort of sounds like, though, that you'd end up just creating a very similar vehicle and just giving it a very different, like a private role rather than a public one. But yeah, because really throughout much. we've had differences where, you know, the government have come out to say one thing and they've they've been stating government policy is X. Mm. And then someone from Neffert has been on a radio program or something and said, well, you know, we wouldn't yeah. really we wouldn't really say that. And and that's that's the yeah. issue here. That and, they, then, and then are they speaking with their Neffert hat on or are they speaking with the other professional role that they have. Yeah, so I think they'll very much want to keep them. But as we head into winter, we've heard Leo Varadkar say this mm. time and time again. It probably scares the bejesus out of people, you know, what it says, enjoy summer. You know, <laughs> <laughs> winter is coming. It's yeah. going to be terrible. Yeah, yeah. you know, and yeah. that yeah. seems what to be... What did you say the other morning that uh, COVID is go- our current theory is that COVID is going to be around for eternity, which, which of course it probably will. But yeah, that's like, I, like I heard, I think that, you know, the INMO are talking about the... Uh, returning of the mask mandate and um, it was interesting I think over the weekend that none of the even opposition parties would Mm. pin Mm. their pin their viewpoint on that or or were calling for that um, to be returned and they were saying you know as long as COVID is with us we should have you know a certain amount of restrictions but I think time and time again I think the government are saying we're we're always going to have COVID Mm. and this is this is the this is the issue. This is yeah. the balancing act of where is that tipping point? Um, you know, I know a number of ministers are trying to tread the line in terms of how do you make this virus, which has, you know, controlled all of our lives for the past two years, how do you move that into a sphere of mm. a more normal yeah everyday right. it virus. It becomes some sort of background noise to your life. Exactly. Yeah. Um, Hugh, what did you make of the some of the, the two camps of immediate responses when it was announced on Friday afternoon that Tony Hulham was moving on? There was some who said, you know, there's a guy who's done the state some service and then there was another corner of the internet which was basically ding dong, the witch is dead. He's become a very divisive figure in the last few months. Yeah, I mean, he, he moved sort of from someone who was on the side of a, a mural of him in a, in a Superman costume painted on the side of a pub mm-hmm. in the early stages of the pandemic in, in the spring of 2020 to someone who has obviously become a, a more divisive figure. But, you know, at, at the same time, he's been more popular than most of the politicians making the decisions uh, on COVID-19 over the last two years than, than, than they have, mm-hmm. have been. And 
you know, I think ultimately, you know, how do we judge how we came through COVID-19? It's really death, isn't it? And most of the early objective analyses of, of Ireland's performance versus other countries is that deaths have been relatively low. Um, you know, it's still been a huge human toll, or, uh, mm. death toll, and uh, a costly toll on all of us, I think, of, of the last two years. And certainly, you know, that stringency index that, that Mark Tighe uh, has a story on in the in the Sunday Times today, you know, we are extremely liberal right now, but yeah. we were among the most stringent um, in Europe and the world for, for uh, the vast majority of the last two years. Mm. Um, Does that mean that, that living with COVID actually means effectively that if if the the implication of this i'm not saying that it's what mark Tig's uh, you know case mm. is not his thesis but if the implication of this is that we are perhaps almost too liberal when it comes to covid we are too permissive for general activity mm. then living with covid actually means some sort of permanently baked in precautions or some kind of limits well, on how I, we live yeah I, I don't know i mean i i think like I, this phrase living with covid like we've been living with covid for two years like we've mm. lived with it through restrictions through mass vaccination through all of the things that we've had to adjust in our lives to cope with covid19 and now we are living with covid19 in a scenario where we have more case numbers in the last few weeks than we had during the the, the first two waves in in 2020 mm. um but we're free to go about our our daily lives on on unhindered yeah. uh unhindered by by masks by you know restrictions in pubs in restaurants and so on and so forth so i mean i think that look we're in a new phase now like the emergency phase is over like christina alluded yeah. to this earlier and this is what philip nolan and, and the Taoiseach were saying in washington um, this is what Tony Holland himself said to Neffet at their last meeting on the 17th of February. The emergency phase is largely over. Therefore, not, there's no need for a national public health emergency team now, but there is a need to keep an eye on what's going on. Mm. And certainly there does need to be uh, some sort of group in place that is reactive to case numbers going up to the extent to which they are and hospitals uh, coming under as much pressure as they are now. But that doesn't yeah. necessarily mean that we respond in the same way that we responded for much of the last two years, yeah. which was bringing restrictions. Uh, it is worth knowing that Tony Hulan doesn't take up that appointment in Trinity College until the 1st of July, so he'll be in situ for a little while to come. I understand that there's a, a few arrangements to work out about uh, leave entitlements and the like and whether he wants to stand down before uh, the Trinity role kicks in, but he's, he's going to be there for, for a little while longer anyway. Um, it is 11.20. Let's go to Brussels and bring in uh, Shona Murray, Europe correspondent with Euronews. Um, Shona, we, we were all looking at the European summit for the last couple of days um, wondering whether we were going to get any kind of breakthrough in the cost of living. But then it sort of seems that all the diplomacy that was going on in, in Brussels and then further beyond on the, the Polish-Ukrainian uh, border, somewhat overtaken by Joe Biden making a very, very significant comment yesterday, which the White House then immediately had to try and walk back. Yeah, that's right. That He said that Vladimir Putin can't stay in power. And this was then interpreted uh, for being the US saying that they're calling for regime change in Russia, similar to, I suppose, regime change in other parts of the world that America has been involved in, like Iraq. Um, but they've, you know, the White House quickly died, you know, to dial this down and said it was an off the cuff remark from Biden, basically just stating the obvious that mm. you can't have Vladimir Putin in power, given that he is engaging in a territorial conquest and a brutal war against his neighbour and also bringing down the Russian economy with it. So so it's been clarified that it's not the US trying to maybe invade Russia. And I think that's pretty clear, given that the US has, uh, much to the chagrin of the Ukrainians, refused to go into even Ukraine, mm. even though they morally and legally have probably the right to do yeah. so. so. But it, did, but it's, 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 it certainly sounds on the face of it, though, like if the White House hadn't immediately tried to walk back, it would sound like a serious escalation. 
Oh, seriously, it would. But um, I mean, but I think if you look at the facts on the ground, the US has confirmed many times that it's not going to send any combat troops into Ukraine, never mind Russia. So um, it's I think I think it's easily died down as another one of Joe Biden's sort of off the cuff remarks. Mm. Other than that, I think that people believe that his visit to Poland yesterday was and his trip to the EU, to the EU over the past few days has actually been quite a good trip in terms of partnership, transatlantic partnership, reviving that partnership, particularly within NATO after four years of Donald Trump. Yeah, um, worth saying it's, uh, it's pointed out by the Sunday Times today. It's the second day in a row that the White House has had to clarify some comments made by the president because on Friday uh, the White House said that American troops would not be going into Ukraine after Biden appeared to suggest that there could be, uh, quote, boots on the ground. He told paratroopers in Poland, you're going to see when you're there, some of you have been there, you're going to see women, young women standing in the middle, standing in front of a damn tank saying, I'm not leaving. And Biden's mention of when you're there seemed to suggest that troops could be deployed across the border, which the administration um, then had to clear up. Um, it's just a little reminder that um, in in many lines of work it's much easier to be a liability than it is to be an asset because you can do a good week's work and then have it all come undone in in a very glib comment Um, going back to the European Council uh, and it was a very very long day of talks on Friday about energy and and how um, energy was going to be uh, differently used in light of what's going on in Russia there seems to be some kind of scope maybe where the cost of living as it relates to energy prices could be coming down soon well, yeah, I mean, this is a complicated discussion that's been ongoing since before the Russian invasion. And that's why we called you to explain it, because I couldn't yeah, do it. Well, it's, well but, um, but obviously it's been ongoing because of the rise in, um, in energy prices for all EU member states. And obviously and many of them have different ways of, well, bundling what they use. Most of, for example, countries like Spain only use about 10% of gas, yet their energy prices are going soaring through the roof because of the price of gas. It has a link with the price of energy. So they've been calling for things like a cap on gas prices. Then there are other member states. This is this is very st- similar to the debate we had a couple of years ago when uh, there was a conversation about the 750 billion euro EU rescue fund. It's mm. about whether or not the EU as a whole intervenes in the market to support member states. Many countries are averse to that because they don't like that sort of intervention. They don't want ever closer economics and financial integration between the EU. But the Spanish and the Southerners tend to want this. They've been calling for the EU, similar to what will happen with the vaccine system, where the EU negotiates uh, on behalf of all 27 member states for energy procurement. And then each country can voluntarily take that energy um, and have it supplied to them. It means that member states aren't competing for gas contracts. So that hasn't been decided on as part of the discussion that was taking place. Um, And then there was also discussion around gas and gas pricing. Again, the Netherlands and other countries saying that if we have gas pricing, a limit on gas pricing, those suppliers will go outside of Europe. Um, But in the end, it was just a sort of a temporary deal done for Spain. But it's still an ongoing one. Hmm. It doesn't concern Ireland as much because we don't actually get our gas from the continent it comes from Scotland so any new deals that are done don't yeah. really um, don't really affect the Irish Was, was there a little bit of leeway though about the uh, the VAT on fuels because that's something that the government says that it can't really touch right now unless there's some change in the European VAT directive and there was some kind of fudgy language in the, the final yeah. document on Friday evening about maybe changing that soon That's what Michal Martin had said uh, on Friday Ireland's been pushing for this part but um, and there probably will be some sort of I mean at the moment 
all of those sort of fiscal rules in Europe are suspended anyway because of the um, because of the COVID uh, pandemic. So there is definitely leeway to do something on that in the coming weeks and months. So I think that's probably on the table for Ireland at least. And that's something that the Irish government has been sort of gathering um, support from other member states saying, well, because Ireland was, for example, dead against intervening in the gas and the energy piece and now is supporting countries like Spain, yeah. uh, Italy and so on. So I think that that piece will be sorted over the next few weeks for Ireland too. Shana Murray, Europe correspondent with Euronews joining us live from Brussels uh, this morning. Thank you very much for joining us at uh, 11.26. It is, by the way, 11.26. If you're tuned in for Future Proof, uh, don't worry, you've already missed it, but it's still available to listen back uh, on newstalk.com or through the app powered by Go Loud uh, as ever. Um, Christina Finn, just before we go to a commercial break, um, it seems like the government has been touting some sort of imminent EU move on uh, VAT on fuels. Yeah. for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks now. Yeah, Michael Martin has been asked consistently about this um, in the doll and, and um, by the media, media about when they can, why they can't touch the VAT rate. Mm. And constantly the Taoiseach has been out to say, look, it's up to the EU, EU, we're waiting, we're waiting. But that's little, I suppose, you know, it gives little hope to people that are seeing those bills come through the door. Mm. Um, <clears throat> you know, he did say that this meeting was going to be, you know, the crunch point. Um, but there does seem to be a little bit more work to do. But if they don't really get mm. a reduction in the VAT re- yeah. rate, I think they'd be on very thin ground. Yeah, they'd really want to be getting on with it. Um, one listener says, if this level of COVID is the new normal, then it's probably time for the HSE to accept that appropriate levels of resources due to be deployed to accommodate this pressure, as well as all of the other needs the HSE is facing, says that list. Um, Hugh, that front page story today in the Business Post about construction contracts uh, now somewhat falling to bits because all of the people who've got tenders to you know, build houses and roads and the stuff that keeps the country going all say now they can't do it because the costs have gone too high. Yeah, it's it's kind of a, I suppose, beyond the kind of fuel and, and foods crises that we've been hearing a lot about over the and, and the and the rising cost of, of those kind of things that we use every day uh, that we've been hearing about over the last few weeks. This is something that hasn't necessarily got as much focus, but is a big, big issue um, because you have uh, in this piece by Michael Brennan and Peter Dwyer today in the Business Post that uh, basically kind of outlining the degree to which the industry uh, is concerned about the hyperinflation of construction mater- in construction materials. And Tom Parlin, um, the CIF's Director General, is meeting with Michael McGrath uh, this uh, coming week to demand that these construction firms get paid extra due to the rising cost of construction materials. Now, that's going to be a difficult ask of Michael McGrath, given all of the other demands that he's facing Mm. in terms of uh, easing uh, consumers and and the general public's cost of living. Um, But Parlin is pointing out that the National Development Plan, that's the €165 billion uh, plan over the next decade to build all sorts of infrastructure up and down the country, uh, is is at risk because construction firms who can't afford to do these projects um, are, you know, at risk of insolvency. So, uh, and just to give kind of one stark fact that's in the piece today, um, Sean Canny, who is an independent TD for Galway East, Mm. but is also a former quantity surveyor, said the price of steel had tripled in the last year for €430 per tonne to €1,500. So it's a real perfect storm there. Um, and it's difficult to see what the government is going to be able to do in this space. I mean, one thing that occurred to me, I don't think it's mentioned in the piece, but the National Children's Hospital. Still being built. Didn't want to go there, but it's still going there. Still being built. And obviously, the, I imagine some of the construction costs there are going to be inflated by what's happening right now. So that's... Uh, 
probably going to add to the already yeah. spiraling cost of that project. Just me, Christine, this is one of the reasons why I was a little surprised that the government ruled out the idea of a mini budget when it did make its move on, on excise or whatever else it did in the last uh, month or so, because all the money that the government set aside last mm. October, if, if they thought, you know, for, for argument's sake, we set aside X billion euros so that we can deliver X number of houses. And if construction inflation goes up and you can't deliver X number of houses, you have to make up your mind. Are you going to prepare to, to then accept fewer houses? Or are you going to pay more to deliver what you thought? And it seems that the government's kind of running away from that question. Yeah, I find it hard to believe that they're not going to have to do something before October. I don't think um, the way things are going and the inflation rise continuing to spiral out of control that they can really sit in their hands if it goes much further. You know, they have said they're not going to do much of a of a mini budget we've seen um Michael McGrath saying as well that the the covid sort of contingency fund that we had set aside that they're going to be you know dipping into um you know perhaps mm-hmm. for for other areas so which probably begs its own questions seeing as um you know we've seen the covid cases rise and what that might mean in the winter time um but yeah, I, I can't see them actually getting to October without having some sort of tinkering along the sides. Yeah. Why are they rooting it out, thank you? Uh, because they have to at this point in time <laughs> to avoid setting expectations any higher well, than they already are. You, you deny um, you're doing it until the moment you're doing it. I guess so, yeah. Um, I, I think you saw even with the, like, you know, the, the measures they did bring out. Yeah. There was huge expectations around yeah. that and there was a lot of people yeah. thinking they were going to get, you know, a lot more. Yeah. But I mean, at the same time, they spent a billion euro on those measures. I mean, we spent a billion euro more, nearly a billion euro more this year than we would have anticipated at the start of the year, which is quite something for the government to have done. Now, I'm not yeah. suggesting that we should praise them like, for that. Like, but we're only a quarter of the way into the year as well. We should like, certainly acknowledge the fact yeah. that they've, they've you know, put a lot of money towards a, a set of measures that on the face of it should alleviate the burden somewhat. But I mean, if you look at the electricity grant, for, for example, mm. like all of the increases in energy bills that companies are announcing uh, in the last few weeks, um, that's just going to gobble mm. up the grant. I mean, I don't know about you, but I got my gas bill this week. <laughs> you're, you're one of those people ins- tweeting saying it's like an unspeakable amount of money yeah. that I'm not even prepared to discuss I'm, uh, publicly I'm glad that I'm on one of those budgeted plans where they average out your costs but I, I kind of yeah. I, I'm on I've, a pay-as-you-go yeah, meter which oh, right. I think is higher but I actually feel a lot more in control of it but, but, they, but you, you must then feel like instead of it just being this nasty surprise that comes in every couple of months you must feel like you're, you're ploughing through it at a much quicker yeah, rate because you're conscious of how much you're going in real yeah, time yeah there's definitely nearly doubled since I've moved into the place but I'm definitely more like I'm running around switching off the lights and well I'm running around know. switching off the uh, or I'm not running the heating anymore <laughs> I can yeah. get away with it yeah <laughs> I can get um, away with the last few on, yeah. on the sort of the, how you know all this is affecting the, the government's pockets and you can totally understand to a point why why the government needs to keep its car close to its chest but there is an analysis today on page 16 of the Mail on Sunday uh, Christina which does point out that now this is a, a survey carried out by uh, Fuels for Ireland the umbrella group for the uh, the, the fuel retailers um, which points out that the government is, is completely creamy of all the uh, VAT and excise that it's now making because as the cost of oil goes higher and the cost of the pumps goes higher then the government naturally benefits as a result Yeah I think um, over the years there's been a lot of Looking back at how um, much profit I suppose the government takes from from fuel in comparison even to other European countries, um, the Irish government makes an absolute killing um, on the on the fuel that we use to fill um, the cars. So I think, 
yeah, the excise, you know, there was a lot of controversy about that one that was brought out about it not being passed on. I know Fuels Ireland have said that was been, that was uncalled for in terms of that they bought the fuel at a different price and that obviously couldn't be passed on overnight. Yeah. I think Peter Burke was on the radio yesterday sort of um, not chastising some of his ministers, but very much speaking to the point that, oh, I never... I never said anything bad about the the petrol pumps mm. uh, and them um, taking any profit. But I, I think the government does have to look at issues like that. And it was something I think we asked the Taoiseach even about in terms of the, the profiteering that some of the companies are making or the energy mm. companies even in Ireland, that there is there is a position that the government could take in terms of, you know, taking... Um, some of the profits off some of those um, companies, yeah. the state runs that we have a stake in, and the teacher. Yeah, ESP Networks of... turned a profit of like six hundred and seventy million euro last year, which which had they decided to break even, perhaps then could have been. Yeah, could have been passed on to all yeah, the customers. Yeah, the um, when he was asked this last week, was very much well. You know, it wouldn't be that much, and you know, when you actually look into how much we could take and pass it on to people, that it wouldn't make that much of a difference. But when you're facing into a crisis like this. Surely throwing the kitchen sink at it, even if it was, as we, I think you and me, Gavin, were mm. talking about, if it was a, a couple hundred million or whatever, like that goes a long way. Um, even if it's just impacting a few households or a few vulnerable uh, households. So I think the government really has to look at all aspects of this. If they're look, if if it comes across that they're profiteering in any way off the back mm. of people that are struggling um, to commute or um, to bring their children into hospital appointments and all the rest, it's going to paint very badly for them and we've already seen that I think um, in the polls which we'll probably touch on as well but um, unless they really you know take this by the scruff of the neck and don't seem to be doing all that they can even if it is just measures that are going to be you know just a a few hundred million that might make the the big sweeping move they really have to be seen to be throwing everything yeah, at this they, I think they, they would tell you though that they don't want to run the risk of an inflationary spiral where if you put more money in people's pockets then they can only chase the higher prices and it's basically what's been happening with property for the last couple of years where the more you make yeah. it the, and more, the more grants that, you give people the higher you see that gets. with wages I think that was touched on one of the, uh, the newspapers as well that the wages aren't catching up with the, the mm. rise of cost of living but then people saying if you, if you do that you're just you know yeah. going to make it get out of control so there's no easy answers yeah. here um, 11.40 uh, and on the record Gavin Riley with you till 1 o'clock uh, somebody has uh, used the hashtag on the record NT they say that we have to start looking outside our borders in relation to construction companies and what they have to offer using the workers that we have from within I'm pretty sure that's already the case that when you get to um, certain projects of certain size you actually have to tender in EU journals so you do actually have to invite bids mm-hmm. from, from anywhere else within the European Union but of course it is still dependent on, on local labour and everything else as well um, someone else who I won't name has been in touch and I, I'm not going to make too much of a thing about this because this person has clearly been misinformed and that's not their own fault. Um, they're asking us why we aren't talking about an upcoming vote on April the 9th in the European Parliament on making the COVID-19 vaccine mandatory. Should we not all be talking about this now? Um, while Hugh and Christina were talking there, I just went and had a check. First of all, April the 9th is a Saturday. So nothing in the European Parliament is going to happen on a Saturday. There is a plenary meeting of the European Parliament between April the 4th and April the 7th in Strasbourg. But I've had a look at the agenda on each of those four days and there is nothing to do with vaccinations or COVID as far as I can make out in the couple of minutes that I was checking the agenda. And it's worth bearing in mind as well that the European Parliament, even if the EU did have the power to enforce vaccine policy on member states, which it doesn't because it doesn't have health competence, that the European Parliament uh, would not be in a position to initiate any of that anyway. It would have to come from the European Commission and they haven't engineered anything like that. There was a vague discussion about it from Ursula von der Leyen 
and it got shut down and it's gone away. So it's not happening. I don't know where this listener was told that there's an upcoming vote on April the 9th in the European Parliament on making COVID-19 vaccine mandatory. Um, they do say in their own bio that truth is the first victim of war. And I think this person maybe just needs to uh, be a little bit more sceptical when they see other people uh, making claims like that. But I won't name them because it's not their fault that they've been misinformed in the way that they have. At 11.42, we will talk about those pretty remarkable opinion polls. And we're back with you and Christine after this. Um, we were saying just before the break that there's a pretty remarkable opinion poll and we're actually discussing through the break that actually the levels of party support in that poll are not all that remarkable. We'll get to it in a second. Um, but what's remarkable about the poll today in the Business Post carried out by Red Sea are some questions about whether people would favour um, a change in Ireland's defence or neutrality policy. There's a lot of people who would be in favour of Irish troops serving in a European army, something which would currently need a constitutional referendum to allow. There even seems to be a majority of people, at least who have their minds made up, uh, in favour of joining NATO. And yet, Christina Finn, there's also a majority of people who don't want to give up our neutrality. Yeah, I think the, me this. The, the, when I was looking at it, the, the stats look kind of interesting because it says 48% are in favour of sending tanks over to Ukraine to help them with uh, any sort of weaponry. Yeah. Um, 39% in favour of a referendum, as you said, on sending troops over. Um but then, you know, 57% when you say, would we change Ireland's neutrality policy? Oh, no, not at yeah. all. So so you'd think that, that that should, on the face of it, that should rule out anything else. If 57% of people, and that, that, that doesn't even include the undecided, it's 14% of people haven't made their minds up. But 57% of people, four out of seven, clear majority. Yeah. Stay what we're doing. Yeah, stay neutral. I, I think it, it, it really speaks to, if we do go down the road of this citizens' assembly that um, the Taoiseach has said he would be in favour of holding, it would be very interesting sort of conversation because um, I, I think people, you know, they want to help Ukraine in any way they can mm. and they have, you know, all the best intentions. But then it's very much like, oh, but we'll do. Oh, yes, I'd totally be in favour of that. But then would you go so far as change? Oh, no, that's that's too far. Yeah. Can I also just mention that my popularity will be going down the polls if I don't wish my mother uh, okay, right. <laughs> I'm going to segue that yeah, in there. Good, good save. Good exit. 11.47. You thought you got out the window on that one. Um, you, uh, yeah, like, like that, is it a case that people want to be able to practically help but want to do it under the guise of neutrality or, or is it actually that a lot of people have different understandings of what neutrality well, I, is? I think that's it's the last bit you said there it's it's people have different understandings like what is yeah. Irish neutrality? It's not yeah. neutrality in the purest sense of the word like Cahill Berry the, the independent TD and former army ranger talks about this a lot like that we, we can't be neutral because like we I mean you know we rely on the British uh, RAF to patrol our airspace you know we, we are reliant on um, you know, we cannot defend ourselves. With the defence uh, commission, a uh, defence forces commission report recently said mm. is that the, the forces' own admission to the commission was, uh, we cannot defend our our skies, we cannot defend our seas. Therefore, we are not neutral in the purest sense of the word. Um, you know, we have U.S. troops coming through Shannon for decades now at this stage. Um, so re- really, our neutrality is quite a an odd sort of neutrality. Mm that I think people like. W- they like the idea of it and they like that we're kind of neutral arbiters and they like the, the peacekeeping missions that we do um, you know, in the Middle East and, and in, in North Africa and so on. But really, the degree to which we understand it, I'm not sure, is is, is great. Yeah, I, certainly, I, I, I don't think that, like, so maybe there is something to be said for a citizens' assembly that discusses yeah. that. But yeah, I think it means 
something different to everybody. But I yeah. think Ireland comes from a from a different point of view, as we have been, I suppose, one of the countries in Europe that has been mm. colonised and up to you mm. know fairly recently mm. had our own conflict. So mm. I, I suppose we're coming at it perhaps from a different yeah. angle than a lot of other nations. Uh, um, and I, I think you'll see, you know, we've seen Leo Varadkar sort of ratcheting up talk of just because we're not involved doesn't mean that we're not a yeah. target um, I'm not sure really that's helpful comments uh, in snap terms poll of the debate, by the way just just as a snap thing and I'm only opening this for another four minutes or so because I don't want it to be to, to influenced by anyone else who might try to skew it um, twitter.com forward slash Gav Riley or the hashtag on the record NT right now poll open for the next four minutes are you in favour of Ireland joining NATO yes no or don't mind just show me the answers that's open for another four minutes if you pop along to twitter.com slash Gav Riley and have your say um, do, Christine do you, do, do you think that then that's that we kind of have managed to reach this hodgepodge that we get to take sides and we get to sort of take sides like we allow Shannon to be used for American landings and whatnot um, uh, but we'd like to convince ourselves that we're not taking sides and that's just fine by us that if we don't don't take a side if we don't commit any troops if we don't commit any personnel any, any weaponry then we're not a target so we're grand as we are thanks I think it would be a very different situation if we were having the debate and there was a real possibility of actually sending um, Irish troops into a conflict zone. I think you'd see people perhaps not being as vocal about Ireland joining up yeah. to the European army. It's very easy for us to say, oh, sure, yeah, I'm in favour mm. of sending Irish troops in a scenario hypothetical. But if you're talking about, you know, young 18-year-old Joe Murphy down the road yeah. heading off into a conflict zone and possibly not coming back and the impact that that has on yeah. a family on a town and all the rest and it being a conflict that maybe we're not all that engaged in but feel obliged to participate in because of the obligations of NATO yeah, membership Yeah I think that's yeah. where people should really focus when they start thinking of um, you know the reality of that mm. Uh, Kim points out on Twitter uh, that maybe all of this is a bit academic anyway because Ukraine was required to up its military to NATO standards in order to join. We can't afford to keep all of our ships staffed and operational and the Air Force is propeller driven. It's never going to happen, she says, which is a reasonable point, which I suppose is why there's also a question in today's poll, Hugh, about whether people would at least favour uh, significantly increasing annual defence spending. So the, the proposal of increasing it to 1.1 billion next year, mm. currently the lowest in the EU, 59% say, yeah, we're in favour of that, 28% against. Mm -hmm. I, I wondered, are they saying that knowing that that's possibly going to mean foregoing a tax cut or not getting that 30% rate that Leo Varadkar is talking about? Well, no, I mean, I think if people were given the choice between a, a, you know greater investment in public services uh, or even a, a, a modest tax cut and spending more on defence, I think they would opt for the former not the latter so um, I mean I think everyone you people would rather have money back in their own pockets I think so yeah you think so yeah yeah. Well, particularly now. Or, great, or, or like as, as consistent mm. polls show, greater investment in public services, a better health mm. service, a, a, yeah. a, an opportunity to buy a house or, or to, yeah. to you know, pay rent at a reasonable rate. Um, I think they would much rather that than, than spending on, on the military. But I mean, I think, look, it, 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 like it, the one thing that the Defence Forces Commission report did highlight is that we, we spend comparatively little on, on defence than other European countries of a similar size to us. And that's mm. something that does need to be addressed. But... Mm needs to be addressed in the context of all of the other demands on government and I think that's going to be a difficult ask. You know? uh, what, uh, on that note actually, what did you make of, of Leo Varadkar dropping a bit of a fiscal bomb this week that he's now looking at or has asked Pascal Donoghue to consider an intermediate income tax rate of 30%? What do I make of the ask? <laughs> well, well, yeah. 
Well, just just how, how out of the blue it seems to have been. It's, Leo Varadkar completely talked, out of the blue. Leo Varadkar, he's talked yeah. about trying to raise the, the tax cut-off point because he doesn't but, think the average look, worker should pay a higher rate. have history but, on flying kites on tax cuts that never. I mean, we're you know yeah. abolish the USC. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> remember that yeah. poster. Yeah. yeah um, so I mean, I don't. I I wouldn't put a huge amount of stock in it. I mean, everyone's kind of said, oh well, look, we'll take a look at it this week. But I mean, as I said, Fine Gael just has so much mm. form over the last ten years of promising the sort of tax cuts that they. They haven't been able to deliver, mm. so I think we have to take well, it with a, it, a large pinch of salt. Is that with one eye on maybe the the current state of its showing in the opinion polls? Because that business post poll, which also then measured yeah, party but I mean, support, like Finnegale, I mean Finnegale have been talking about tax cuts for years, yeah. and like again, I go back to consistent polling shows that people aren't necessarily interested in the modest tax cut. They just like a functioning health mm. service. They just like the mm. opportunity to be able to buy a house. Yeah. They just like the opportunity to pay energy bills that aren't as, as sky high as they are at the moment yeah. and, and all that kind of stuff. You know, they're, they're not interested in knocking five quid uh, off their pay. All, all yeah. unchanged, unchanged utterly uh, as far as it goes in this support, uh, in this this poll, Christina. Uh, Sinn Féin, for the fifth time in a row, uh, yeah. unchanged at 33%. Um, Fine Gael, now at their lowest ever in, in Red Sea polls, 19. Yeah, it really doesn't look like anything is going to stop Sinn Féin from barreling through on these polls and I think Fianna Gael will be um, pretty worried looking at that stats. Uh, Fianna Fáil as well um, I think 16% um, there's real trouble here I think for for the government parties in terms of where they're situated. A very difficult position they're in at the minute in, in terms of cost of living on the back of COVID um, any waves they were hoping to make I think with the programme for government um it's just a very difficult um, ask for them. I think you'll, you've seen them try and do bits with the sort of the social policy. You see, mm. you know, Hal McEntee coming out, you know, you know, ploughing through legislation that the Justice Department has been saying they'll do. And I think they're trying to maybe make an impact on that end of things, saying that, you know, things that have been left on the shelf that, that they are going to deal with. But really, at the end of the day, um, Sinn Féin are dealing with the bread and butter issues mm. in terms of housing promises, healthcare promises. Mm. I don't think there's any illusion that an opposition par- party, when they make promises, the chances are they're not going to deliver yeah. you know, the majority of them when they're in government. We've seen that even from Fianna Gael and Fianna Fáil. So I don't think Sinn Féin will be any different. But there are some interesting sort of discussions in the Sunday papers about, you know, why people are turning to Sinn Féin and the narrative around that is it that people are lear- moving to more of a, a left centre um, policy or is it just that they're they're dealing in the issues that matter to people and I think that might come down to what it is mm. you know in the background of all the cost of living COVID and the rest it really is housing and healthcare that continues to be the top issues and it has been that way since the election yeah. I was reading an interesting profile of the new mayor of New York Eric Adams in Politico a couple of days ago and he had a very very cogent line about often parties are trying to make themselves heard really what they need to do is try and make themselves felt and maybe there are some parties that are doing better on that front than others um, the snap poll on Twitter has closed uh, 62% of you nearly a thousand people voted thank you all for doing so uh, nearly 62% of you say no to Ireland joining NATO uh, 23% in favour and 15% were not bothered or whatever just wanted to show the answers which maybe maybe illustrates that maybe depends on, on the quotient of people you ask or the way that you put the question and that's maybe something to be borne in mind for future referendums uh, we're out of time this hour big thank you to Christina Finn political correspondent with the journal.ie and Hugh O'Connell political correspondent with the Irish and Sunday Independence. 